From Coast to Coast to Coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa, production of CJSR 88.5. I'm Andy Silva. I'm Charlotte Thomason, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of Environmental Stories. I would like to begin this episode by acknowledging that we are situated here in Amiskachewiskaigan, meaning Beaver Hills House, on Treaty 6. Treaty 6 is the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, Lakota Sioux, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. The university neighborhood our studio is located in is the traditional territory of the Métis, and the southern part of so-called Edmonton is Papa's Chase Cree Reserve Land. This week, we are discussing different forms of climate action. When we bring these discussions forward, it is important to acknowledge our settler complacency in the past and now. Indigenous people have been land defenders since time immemorial and are already on the front lines of climate action. The stakes are not equal, and it is a privilege to discuss and analyze the climate crisis from a distance position. When you consider treaty this week, consider what actions you are taking to uplift Indigenous folks taking climate action. We'll drop some links in the show notes. It is no secret that we are living in the Anthropocene where human choices past and presently have pushed us into a climate crisis. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has warned that we only have 10 years left to keep the planet at 1.5 degrees of warming, which will still cause increases in natural disasters and sea levels. This justified sense of urgency has left people wondering how they can take action. These actions can basically be divided into two categories, individual and collective action. There's been some debate about the effectiveness of both kinds, arguing over which one will create the systemic change we need. Why is there this opposition? This week, we dive into what individual and collective action can look like, and also acknowledge the privilege that can be rooted in any environmental movement. How can we as settlers shift our behavior to reconcile with climate action? The first kind of climate action is individual action. Individual action refers to the actions taken by one individual person, acting based on his or her personal decisions. These are often consumer-driven and can affect economic markets. Some examples include taking public transit instead of driving, reducing the amount of meat we consume, avoid using plastic products, and trying to reduce the amount of water we use. Uh, for me, um, living in Edmonton, I choose not to drive, which makes it a little bit hard because it's a city where it's very um, sprawled out. And if you don't drive, there are limited options, but it's something that for me personally, it works. Um, I choose to be a vegan for um, environmental reasons as well. Um, but again, that's what works for me. And those are some of the individual actions that I take. Yeah, so um, I guess to start with, uh, the first important thing is to realize the climate change. Like, uh, 
and try to reduce the output of carbon dioxide from oneself. Uh, like just as Andy said, uh, take more taking more um, public transportation definitely helps, and start, start starting from oneself like using less uh, plastic bag, or, and also use reusable water bottles that also helps. Individual actions can allow people to exercise their agency, and this can make a big difference. Looking at America, seventy percent of GDP is driven by consumer behavior, demonstrating just how much pull individual action can have if everyone is doing it. And individual action is important because of that. It accumulates over time and it compounds with the individual actions of other people. So while at an individual level, these actions might seem small when compared to the threat of our current climate crisis, but the impact of all of our individual actions together do matter in the bigger picture. For my master's dissertation, I analyzed the efforts of the Brazilian city of Curitiba, my hometown, in becoming a place that has sustainability as one of its core values. The city started the process with a major systemic change in the early 90s that changed the way that it operates. Major streets were permanently closed to cars, an entire new transportation system was created, and recycling became widespread in the city. After the initial backlash from sectors of the population resisting the change, residents were introduced to the idea of a new city, a city that has sustainability as one of its core values. City management clearly indicated that a change in behavior was necessary and shared with the general public ideal sustainable behavior engagement on a personal level. While major credit needs to be given to urban planners and the city officials, the success of the plan really only came with the change in behavior in the population. And that is the importance of individual behavior. Once it's embedded in our culture and in our everyday lives, it normalizes actions that benefit the environment and combat climate change. Curitiba's example, to me, is the perfect combination of individual and collective action. Today, about 30 years after the initial planning stages of the transition, the city is known as the green capital of Brazil and praised for its innovation and inclusion. Yeah, um, some of the other ones I kind of think of are that people often refer to when they're talking about individual action um, are things like recycling, um, trying to reduce waste um, and like personal consumption. Um, and people sometimes also talk about uh, investing. So the way you personally invest your money, whether you're investing in um, stocks that support fossil fuels or you're investing um, in stocks or bonds that um, support renewable energy. A really big one that we see in North America, which is kind of a catch-22, but a lot of people fly, um, uh, which is a component of both uh, privilege and having money to fly, but also a component of the lack of wide-scale public transit and high-speed trains that we have, don't have. Andy, do you want to talk about your 
research and um, how it relates to individual actions. It is also important to note that living here in North America, we have massive carbon footprints, and the expectation to continue consuming at the current rate is entirely unsustainable and will not bring about change, despite the products being, quote, green or recyclable. In Canada, most plastics you put in the recycling actually end up being dumped in Malaysia, illuminating the lack of responsibility that these, quote, westernized countries have for reducing waste and tackling the climate crisis. Of course, in Canada and in a lot of North America, becoming green also comes with a large price tag. Due to this, it is often only affluent people that have access to local organic foods or zero-waste products. For sure. I find it interesting thinking about uh, living in like a decarbonized future and what that means when we're thinking about like just the sheer amount of plastic we use every day. Um, Yeah, even if you're using like a reusable water bottle, I know like I have a lot of reusable water bottles that are still made of plastic and there are yeah, just like even looking around this room, like everything was probably made with plastic or packaged in plastic. So it's really interesting to think about how individual choices um, are going to have to change no matter what. Um, like, I guess, exactly. yeah, yeah. Um, by choice or not, the lifestyle that we are currently living is just not sustainable. Um in the slightest, speaking yeah. from North America and Edmonton specifically. Yeah, and we all we are always looking for um, alternatives, especially green alternatives to uh, substitute our current lifestyle. But maybe what we need to think about is we need to change our lifestyle. We can't think of like oh, I'm just going to continue living the way that I am and I'm going to substitute a few things here and there for a more sustainable option when in reality we need to change our lifestyle rather than the alternatives. Yeah, I I think it is really central to think about lifestyle change um, because, yeah, if, yeah, I don't know. If you, like, cut out meat once a week but then you still take like four family vacations every year in which you fly. Um, Those kind of things like counteract each other. Um, And so it's important to think about, um, yeah, not necessarily how we're like substituting things in our lives, but how we're actually um, as individuals thinking about a way to like transform our current lives and transform like the way we are functioning. Yeah, and on an individual level, the more that we read about changes that we could make or the more that we're made aware of how our lifestyle needs to change, it's easy to get overwhelmed and think, oh my god, now I have to sell my car, be a vegan, never travel anymore, and how am I going to live? And we don't necessarily have to... um, give up everything and start a homestead. Uh, We could just look at our lives today. Um, 
look out for the low-hanging fruit, right? What am I doing right now that has the largest carbon footprint? And how can I maybe um, lower that? And how can I take um, individual actions to um, make sure that I am not damaging the environment um, more, right? Um, so maybe for some people, it could be uh, just doing meatless Mondays, or it could be taking transit um, once or twice a week rather than driving every day. Um, and it's more the beauty with, uh, of individual actions is that they are individual. They are particular to each one of us, right? Um, we don't have to sell everything and go uh, move to like the country and start a farm. We can, there is always something that we can do that's tangible and that has a huge impact on our carbon footprint. And I guess that's something personal that we all have to um, look to our own lives and figure out what that is. Yeah, I think it's definitely about um, taking ownership, especially um, speaking, yeah, speaking for myself uh, and like, being a settler, um, being white, like coming from a like privileged background, um, I think it's about like taking responsibility and manifesting that through individual actions that like I'm trying to make in my own life, um, and not necessarily, um, yeah, like putting onus on other people. Uh, to try to like pressure them to do the same thing, but really just taking like that personal responsibility and that that's where um, the individual actions can help you like take ownership um, and responsibility of your own like personal carbon footprint uh, without necessarily problematically like shifting the blame. I think that being conscious of our privilege is extremely important when we discuss climate action. Most of the news outlets we get access to are in North America. Most of us listening to this episode are either North American or at least we live here currently. However, everyone across the globe has a stake in this. This crisis affects all of us. In fact, according to climate specialist Richard Washington in a BBC article, Africa is the continent that is the most vulner vulnerable to climate change. Yet, we think of climate change through our own North American lenses, without really taking into account the diversity of the stakeholders in the discussion. We have to take into account the different ways society operates across the globe to develop plans that are holistic, rather than develop something that's specific here to North America to our context and try to apply that to other areas in the world. Um, so when we're talking about individual and collective actions, um, collective actions we usually tend to think about as something that will generate the most results because they could lead to uh, potentially um, structural changes. And these structural changes are really going to be the driving force to uh, lower carbon footprint and to a uh, revamping on the way that we uh, that we live today. So they are um, they could potentially generate the most results, but individual actions are always easier to control because it's a personal choice. You don't depend on other people. It's just a, a decision that you take. Um, we have more power over our individual actions. 
And even if we do have a big collective action that does generate um, a change, a systemic change in the way that we live our lives, our lives are still governed by individual actions. So the structures might change and might adapt to a more leaner, greener um, structure, but uh, we're still living on that structure and we're still going to um, take individual um, actions that are really a reflection on how we see ourselves in society today, right? We have attachment to people and places. We are part of communities. And all of these um, factors, they really um, shape the way that we act individually. So I don't really see it a huge difference between individual and collective action. As far as importance, I see both of them actually um, being um, coexisting together, really, because we need the collective actions to change large structures of power. But if they do change, we need the individual actions for all of us as individuals to really take those changes and um, apply them to our lives. The second form of climate action is collective action, which refers to the actions taken by a collection or group of people acting based on a collective decision. These actions aim to mobilize groups and pressure political powers or corporate interests to enact change. So I guess before we talk about collective actions, it would be nice to understand like the global greenhouse gas emissions that can be broken down by uh, different economic activities. So according to uh, the United States Environmental Protection Agency, uh, at the global scale, and different economic activities have different impacts on the greenhouse gas emission. For example, the production of electricity and heat accounts for about 25% of the global greenhouse gas emissions, and the industry accounts for about 21%. Agriculture and forestry accounts for 24%. Uh, for the produ production of greenhouse gas, this number is 14 for transportation and 6% for buildings. So I guess correspondingly, based on this information, we can take uh, different measures to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. For example, like um, like on the technology side, the advancement of new renewable energy solution would be nice, like using different energy forms like wind energy, solar power, or the use of biomass and the advanced hydropower or nuclear energy, or like high efficiency gas fuel cell heavy power systems. And on the building side, like to reduce the energy consumptions from the installation of walls, roof, and also the improvement of lighting system. Also, uh, the intelligent building systems can be built, like there are some kind of smart windows that could reduce the heat goes through into the room by just automatically adjusting the light. And for transportation, like the development of electric and fuel cell vehicles that could reduce gas emission. 
also like the encouragement of the public transportation also works. Mm -hmm. A recent nationwide collective action is the solidarity movement in response to the militarized RCMP invasion of unceded Wet'suwet'en territory, where land defenders occupying the area were arrested and removed while trying to prevent the construction of the coastal gas link pipeline. Collective tactics used include traffic and rail blockades and occupations of political offices from coast to coast. At the BC Parliament, youth standing with Wet'suwet'en successfully shut down Parliament by blocking all entrances and made the fountain outside run red for the Indigenous blood the BC government has on its hands from this and other resource projects. Of course, there are many other forms of collective action. You may be familiar with climate strikes, which are an increasingly prevalent example of collective action. This is what democracy looks like! 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 Often when I think of collective action, uh, I think of the idea of like big groups of people coming together, often for things like uh, like marches, uh, specifically climate marches, um, groups that are working towards divestment from fossil fuels, um, people pushing for government action, so things like calling your MLA and telling them that you don't want uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline approved um, because it's in violation of uh, Indigenous sovereignty. One of the major positive aspects of collective action is that it brings people together. Going on marches, engaging with elected officials, and demonstrating support for climate action in a political perspective these are all actions that require other people's support. This is not something that you change really by doing it alone. There's a lot of power in finding people who share your beliefs and demonstrating your support if you feel safe to do so. It shows everyone that thinks similarly to you that they are not alone. It really creates a sense of community. And if we want to combat climate crisis, we need a global effort. We really do need each other. Marches are a really like public and vocal way to engage in collective action. Um, and currently, I guess we're seeing that marches are only becoming more prevalent, only getting more people out. Um, so I think that they kind of have uh, almost a domino effect in which they're, yeah, they're only kind of gonna get bigger and become a larger movement. live in a democratic society and so our political leaders are supposed to be representing us uh, whether that's true or not right now uh, is kind of up for a debate but uh, the more people you have out doing something uh, and like trying to make a difference and showing that hey this is not okay we need to be taking action on climate change um I think the more likely you are to have politicians that want to appease those 
uh, people and a piece of those um, constituents and will kind of modify their, hopefully modify their uh, like political decisions and platforms around uh, what the public actually wants. In the end, both forms of climate action have successes and drawbacks. This is not to say that all hope is lost, that we are doomed and anything we do is pointless. In fact, it is the opposite. We need every person committing to take action in some form. As we discussed earlier in this episode, it is about everyone doing what they can. In the end, uh, we need systemic change. And so people have to be showing up, um, showing up for people of color, showing up for indigenous folks, um, showing up for migrants, um, and showing up for the climate uh, because if we want things to change and if we need them to change quickly, we have uh, 10 years, according to the IPCC, to make a lasting uh, lasting impact and lasting change. Um, and so I think it's really important for folks to, um, if they have money to shop green, um, maybe kind of considering where that money would be more useful um, and donating money to groups that are actually doing activism on the ground, um, groups that are, you know, lobbying the government to make decisions, um, groups that are trying to uh, protect the land. Yeah, indigenous people that are trying to protect the land and the water um, and be guardians to that area and say no to resource extraction, unlawful resource extraction on their land. And I think when we think about ways in which we can go greener or um, spend money going greener, um, we should also be thinking about ways in which we can donate money or donate time to collectives that are uh, working towards system change um, and climate justice. We need systemic change, which is driven by folks standing up against our current systems and demanding more, demanding real action on climate change. By incorporating both individual action and collective action into your daily life, you're empowering yourself and those around you to fight back against apathy. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton, a campus and community recording studio. If you have questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or feel free to reach out to us through Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, and those are all at Terra Informa. Visit us at terrainforma.ca, and don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
Thank you this week to our contributors, Derek Simpson, Sean Howe, Andy Silva, and Hannah Cunningham. Terra Informa is entirely volunteer-run, and we survive because of generous donations to our host studio, CJSR 88.5 FM. Consider a donation to your local radio station to keep stories like this on the air. I've been your host, Charlotte Thomason, and we'll catch you next week right here on Terra Informa. something I'm giving up on you. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> it's